to Matthew chapter 6. It's the last paragraph in this chapter where Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I have entitled this message, The Woeful World of Worry. And I did it on purpose. It is a tongue twister. And that's the effect that worry will have on your life. It will twist you into a pretzel emotionally. In fact, the very word worry comes from an old German word, bergen. Now, doesn't even that sound kind of a harsh word, bergen? And originally, it means to choke, to strangle, to twist. The Greek term means to rip or to tear. The idea is of a, an emotional choking, a mental strangulation. Jesus spoke of the seed that was sown on a particular type of soil. And Jesus described that person as one who is choked by worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the concern for other things. It chokes you. Imagine if you had a backpack that you put on every morning, a day pack. It was empty when you started. And every person that you met that caused some anxiety or every situation that you found yourself in that caused some stress, a stone was dropped in that backpack. The beginning of the day, no problem. By the end of the day, perhaps big problem. Some of you would be bent so low. In fact, how many times do we come home and say, what a tough day. I have met some people who are better at worrying than others. They're really good at it. They could give lessons on how to do it. And they've even pointed out to me when I've seemed carefree about a situation, you should worry about that. I was even going through the Internet this week and found a website devoted to worry. I typed it in to see, just for fun. Thousands of entries, but one I found called Addicted to Worrying. People have emailed their worries in, and they're posted according to month and according to year. It's page after page after page. Some of it very serious, some of it light-hearted. Of course, much truth is said in jest. Um, here's a few of them. One said, I worry that when my coworkers get a lottery pool going and I don't join in, 
that will win and everyone will quit, then I'll have to do all this work by myself. <laughs> One emailed in, I worry that when I'm ice skating, I will fall and another skater will pass by and the blade of his skates will slice off my fingers. It's a morbid thought, isn't it? Need to counsel that person. One wrote in, I worry that my cat would sit on my face while I'm sleeping and I'll suffocate. <laughs> Another person wrote in, I worry that there are spiders and bugs in my bed when I go to bed and they will crawl all over me and get into my nose, my mouth, and my ears. <laughs> Another person wrote in, I worry that one day all the cats in the world will suddenly decide to hate me. Somebody wrote, I worry that one day my face will get so full of zits and freckles that my head will explode. <laughs> you couldn't make this up. I didn't make this up. I found this. The last one that I am going to share with you is somebody said, I worry that one day they will stop making chocolate and I will starve to death. <laughs> somebody said, yeah. No greater tyrant emotionally in the 20th century than stress, than anxiety. In fact, how often have you heard that word stress in the last decade? Books, articles, vitamins, how to alleviate stress, etc. If you're ever in a big city, besides looking at the city, look at the faces of people um, on their way to work or on their way to whatever. Study them. And notice the lines of worry and concern about the face. Uh, I found this week the National Institute of Mental Health says anxiety is the most frequently reported mental health problem. And according to their findings, nearly 13 million Americans spend the better part of their day feeling anxious. That's a lot of worry. What are people worried about? Well, there are national, international, world worries as well as personal worries. According to U.S. News and World Report, um, people worry around the world or about the world with things concerning violence, drugs, inflation, famine elsewhere, and threats of war. Causes lots of worry. Personally, people worry about such things as wasting too much time, not reading enough, not attending church regularly enough, overeating and overspending. Well, in this last paragraph in chapter 6, Jesus deals with this common issue of worry. And basically, basically what Jesus says is this. If you are a follower of Christ, worry is unwarranted and worry is unnecessary. It's unwarranted or uncalled for and it's unnecessary. First of all, it is unwarranted for a follower of Christ. Notice verse 25, a commandment is given. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry. And look down at verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Three times comes the commandment in one paragraph not to worry. It's unwarranted for you as a child of God. 
In the original language, the idea is to stop an action already going on. Best translation would be stop being perpetually uneasy, anxious, or worried about your life. That's the amplified rendering of that. Now, when Jesus said this, he's speaking to Joe Average Citizen who has to make ends meet, work hard, and pay the bills. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. And once he asks, so why do you worry? Paul the Apostle said, having food and clothes, with these we shall be content. Jesus takes it a step further and says, don't even worry about these things. What does he mean? I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. He's not saying, be lethargic. He's not saying, never plan. He's not saying, don't work hard. He's not saying, just kick back and just open your mouth toward heaven and food will float in the room from the outside. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the illustration Jesus uses is birds. Anybody who studies birds knows they work hard. In fact, for some birds, they spend most of their time foraging for food to provide for their families. We even have a saying, the early bird catches the worm. Birds don't point their beak up toward heaven and have birds drop in like rain. They work hard. But what this does mean is an anxious over-concern, this virgin, this choking, this anxious over-concern that will strangle you emotionally. And again, the illustration is of birds. When was the last time you saw a bird really worried? Ever seen a bird sweat? Ever watch a bird wringing its claws, putting its little head in its claws, going, I don't know if we have enough to pay for the rent on the nest this month? Never see them do that. We hear them singing, but we don't see them fretting. Don't worry, it's unwarranted. I love what one pundit said. He said, worry is like a rocking chair. Gives you something to do, but never gets you anywhere. So, hey, if you want something to do, because you got nothing to do, worry is a good thing to do if you just want to do something. But it will never take you anywhere. It is absolutely worthless. Um, I found a study from the University of Wisconsin that said 40% of the worries that people have are over things that never happen. 30% of the worries that people have are over things that are past and cannot be changed. 22% of the worries people have are over very trivial things. And only 8% are legitimate concerns. Therefore, I say unto you, do not worry. I also found from a British clinic that examined 500 patients that one-third of the patients they examined suffered from Visual problems directly due to worry, stress. Visual problems, a third of the patients, caused by stress. Dr. Leonard Fosdick from Northwestern University said that worry restricts the flow of saliva in the mouth, which means the natural acids in the mouth are not properly neutralized, which adds to tooth decay. Another study surveying 5,000 students in 21 different colleges found out that worriers get lower grades than non-worriers. And several medical studies have proven that worry breaks down resistance to disease. So 
I don't know. I guess that says if you want to be sick, blind, flunky with no teeth, worry. <laughs> but worry is unwarranted. Jesus, three times in one paragraph, gives us a commandment rather than a suggestion to stop a process already going on. Stop worrying. Jesus follows that up by showing us that worry is unnecessary for a follower of Christ. One of the things I have always loved about Jesus is he doesn't toss out platitudes that are meaningless. He doesn't just say, don't worry, be happy. Uh, I remember that song. Remember that a few years ago? In every life we have some trouble. When you worry, it only doubles. So don't worry, be happy. It's a great little tune. But whenever I heard it, I thought, tell me why not to be. Jesus does that. He gives us three reasons why we as children of God, followers of Christ, ought not to have an anxious over-concern that will strangle us emotionally. First of all, because you are slaves and God is your master. Because you're slaves and God is your master. Let me explain. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Unfortunately, most people read this paragraph without noticing the most important word in the first sentence, which is the word therefore. We just begin with therefore. Now, when is the last time you began a thought with therefore? You don't walk up to someone and say, therefore, good morning. Therefore, how are you doing? It's a, it's a word that ties a previous thought with the present thought. Whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, find out what it's there for. Therefore refers to the thought in verse 24. Notice the thought. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore... I say to you, do not worry about your life. He's saying, I am the master of your life. That's why you shouldn't worry. Now, why is that a cause not to worry? Well, in the master-slave relationship, which is the analogy Jesus uses, the New Testament style, 120 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. They were completely owned by the master. There are several important factors about this relationship that open our understanding of. First of all, as master, God owns everything. Now think about that. This is God's world. The scripture says that uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God made the earth. God made people on it. Everything belongs to God. And we belong to God. He made everything. He owns everything. We belong to God, first of all, by creation. Second of all, by redemption. I heard a cute little story some years ago, and I've always loved it. It's about a little boy who made a gingerbread man. And he worked hard on his gingerbread man. He put little buttons on the belly and little candies for eyes and nose and licorice mouth, fashioned the ears, did it just right, baked it in the oven, came back, took it out of the oven, set it out on the counter to cool, came back a little later, found out the gingerbread man had run away. And so he chased his gingerbread man, looked for it all over town, finally found it in a bakery window with a little sign, 25 cents. He thought, oh, wait a minute, 
25 cents. It's my gingerbread, man. I made this little guy. So he walks in, excuse me, sir. This is my gingerbread man in your window. I want it back. The man said, fine. For a quarter, it's yours. No, 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 no. I made this gingerbread man. He is mine. He ran away from me. Okay. Well, somebody else brought him in and sold him. And now he's mine. And if you want him, you cough up the money. So the little boy reached in his pocket and gave the man a quarter and took his gingerbread man back home and had a good talking to that gingerbread man, and basically said, you were mine because I made you, and now you are mine because I bought you. That's God's story to us. God made us, and all we like sheep have gone astray, the Bible says. And so God, graciously to redeem us, sent His Son to spill His blood on a cross at Calvary so that we would become His. And so God can say to you, child of God, You're mine because I made you, and now you're mine because I bought you. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 6, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You were a slave, set free now. You are a slave of God. He is the master. That's why Paul, when he writes his letters, says, Paul, a doulos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I'm his his slave. So you're God's slave. He owns you. He owns the world. He owns all the resources in the world. So why should we worry if God decides to take back something that already belongs to him? As Job said in his suffering, having lost family members and possessions, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I heard that one day John Wesley, the evangelist, was preaching and someone ran up to him and said, your house is burned down. Your house is burned down. And Wesley looked at him and smiled and said, no, it hasn't. I don't own a house. And the house that I've been living in belongs to the Lord. And if it's burned down, it's one less responsibility I have to worry about. I don't don't know how true that story is, but if it is true, what a great view of life in relationship to God as my master. Also, as master, God will provide everything. It's true, slaves were completely owned by their masters, but there was a deal they worked out. There was an arrangement. The owner had complete sovereign control over the slave. It meant that all of the needs the slave had, all of the needs the family of the slave had, were now the responsibility of the master. I'm your master. And I, as your master, therefore say, do not worry. Your problems are my responsibilities. Notice some of the basic things Jesus mentions in this verse. What we eat, what we drink, and what we wear. Isn't it funny how these are the very things that strangle us so often? Emotionally, we're concerned about these basic things of life. And Jesus is saying, your master has a responsibility to you as a slave of his, He's going to provide for you. God will provide. Now, that's not to say that you're going to eat steak and lobster every night for dinner this week. But I will guarantee each of you, none of you will starve to death this week either. God will provide for your needs. Also, as master, God is sovereignly in control of everything. I'll tell you what. Isn't it a great point of confidence to know that nothing can come our way unless it's been pre-approved by the Father? 
Everything that could come into your life, it's like God stops and says, let me just see if this is, oh yeah, this is perfect. Skip needs this trial. It's tailor-made for him. It'll hurt him, but he'll grow. Here goes, I approve of this. He is sovereignly in control of everything. Let me give you an example. Peter, best example I can think of. Peter was a worry wart. As I read this guy's life, Peter worried often. Uh, Peter worried that he would sink when Jesus said, come on, walk on the water. And he starts walking and then he rationalizes, wait a minute, men can't walk on water. Boom, he went down. He's in the garden and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. He gets all worried, pulls out a sword. I got to protect God. <laughs> and he lops a guy's ear off. Or, or how about at the Last Supper? He's the guy who's inquiring who here at the table is going to betray Jesus. Or on the mountain, when Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, Peter's thinking, hey, you know, we need to build three apartment houses here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's always busy, never resting, always worried. And then we come to something in Acts chapter 12, which doesn't sound like Peter. He's arrested. Next day, he's going to have his head cut off. At least that was the plan of the Roman government. We arrest him and tomorrow we kill him. And we look into that prison and we find Peter sleeping. That's not the Peter I remember. The Peter I remember is up worried, trying to figure out maybe he can do something. Not only is Peter sleeping, sleeping so soundly that an angel has to nudge him to get him up. Listen to this verse. Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. Peter was sawing logs in that prison, resting. He had learned the lesson that he has a master in sovereign control of the situation. And Peter will write after this. He'll write a letter and he'll write a verse in it that you love, casting all of your care upon him. Because he cares for you. Or better translation, throwing all of your anxieties upon him. Because he cares for you. Peter had learned his lesson. I was uh, reading a little quip from the National Bureau of Standards in Washington this week. Not perhaps a terribly uh, stimulating piece of literature. But something struck out to me there. It seems that if you were to take a, a, a dense fog a hundred feet thick fog bank that encompassed seven square city blocks. The moisture in that wouldn't even fill one glass of water. So go out there and try to get all those moisture molecules and stick it inside of a little glass. You won't even fill one glass. Yet it's hard to navigate through a fog bank. And, And I thought, you know, if we could just get our worries, our problems in perspective... I bet they wouldn't even fill a glass when you compare it to the power of God, our master. Charles Spurgeon wrote something about this. He said, it does not matter how heavy your troubles are if you can cast them on the Lord. The heavier they are, so much the better for the more you have gotten rid of and the more there is laid upon the rock. Oh, this burden, I can't carry it. That's the point. Don't. Realize you're a slave of a master who has responsibility, sovereign control, and love for you. 
There's another reason why not to worry. Not only because you're slaves and God is your master, but also because you're sons and daughters of God and he is your father. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Have you seen the point of those verses? The use of the phrase, your heavenly Father? He says, God has made them and God provides for them, but he's your heavenly Father. See the difference there? God is the bird's creator. He created a beautiful biosphere, abundant with resources, but he's your dad. There's a big difference. The birds are out there singing because of the provision, but he's your heavenly father, and you're going to worry when you have that kind of a relationship? I mean, think what it costs God to make you his son or daughter. He spared not his own son, the Bible said. He sent Jesus to die on a cross so that you could become a child of God. You think God's going to stop there and go, okay, Now that you're my child, you're on your own. Fend for yourself. I hope you make it. Do you think that way about God? You know what Paul said? Listen to his words. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? No bird is created in the image of God. No bird has ever been recreated in the image of Christ, given a born-again experience. No bird is given the promises that I'm going to prepare a place for you and come and receive you to myself. Only God's children have been given that. I've always loved that little poem, Two Birds Having a Conversation. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should surely like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. People often worry because they don't have a relationship or they forget, oh yeah, he's my father. Look how Jesus applies this to his disciples. He asks a question in verse 27. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit, 18 inches, to his height, his stature? Answer that question. It's absurd. Uh, Picture a guy, really short, has a short man's complex, very angry that he's short, and he's worried, I wish I could just add 18 more inches, man. Is it going to help? Standing there worrying about it? Now, some translations will say, which of you by worrying can add one moment or one day to his life? And perhaps the idea is not just growing 18 inches, but if you really worried all day long, would you live longer? Now, I know we live in a day and age when you can look like you live longer, right? Lady Clairol has done wonders. We can color our hair. 
We can go to surgeons and lift our face way back. You can be 65 and look like you're 25, but you know what? You're still 65, and you'll die the normal time of death. You won't add a single day to your life. So does worrying help? No, in fact, if anything, worry takes life away. Dr. Charles Mayo, founder of the famed Mayo Clinic, said, quote, Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the entire nervous system. I have never met a man or woman. I have never known a man or a woman to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who have died of worry. Another question Jesus asked by way of application to his disciples. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothes? It's a good question. Think about that question next time you go to the store. And not to judge anyone, but, but you might want to just watch people as they go shopping for clothes. It's a jungle out there. I mean, some are so intense. What are you doing? Looking for clothes. As if they've made fashion a god. Why do you worry about clothes? The example he uses Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Flowers have such a short lifespan. The more you study them, you see how intricate and beautiful they are. Take them under a microscope even. You go, man, this is gorgeous. Look at the the colors and the, just the, the, the fascination of creation. But in the Middle East, and this is the idea, flowers were cut often and dried for a couple hours in the hot sun and used to fuel bread ovens. They would quickly stuff the grass and the flowers at the bottom of the oven to get a quick flame going to bake their bread. So this beauty, as wonderful as it is, is very short-lived. You, on the other hand, were created for eternity. You are immortal. And if God can take care of flowers that are gone today or here today and gone tomorrow, what are you worried about? He'll take care of you. You may want to just test your memory for a moment. What were you worrying about one year ago? You say, I don't know, but it was really bad. I know that. <laughs> yeah, but I bet most of you can't remember a year ago today, what was I worried about? It's gone. There's another reason not to worry, and that is because you are servants and God is your ruler. I find verse 33 to be really the, the pinnacle of this paragraph. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, I think the important word is the overlooked word in verse 33. It's the first word. It's the word but. You don't begin a sentence with but, or you'll get in trouble with your English teacher if you do. It refers to a previous thought. But I say unto you, or in other words, in contrast to worrying, rather than worrying, work for the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, folks... Here is the cure for worry. Here is the antidote for those who are burdened. 
redirect your energy, redirect your concern, redirect your care into kingdom things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you as well. Seek first, the Greek word proton, first in priority. First things first. This is what Jesus is saying. He's going, I'll make you a deal. Rather than you worried about all of your world and your kingdom and your concerns, if you worry and seek first and concern yourself with my kingdom, I'll worry about your kingdom. I know all the stuff you need. You just keep as a focused priority the kingdom of God, and I'll take care of all of your needs. All of these things shall be added unto you. The problem is we have reversed it, right? A lot of us have reversed it. We're busy seeking our own comfort, our own kingdom, our own will, and we just hope the kingdom of God's going to be thrown in on the side. I found something called Recipe for a Miserable Life. And you say, well, I'm not interested in that kind of recipe. But I bet you'll find a lot of people live there. Recipe for a Miserable Life. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service that you may have rendered. Be on the lookout for a good time for yourself. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others. Love yourself supremely. Be selfish. That's a recipe for a miserable life. In contrast to that, the recipe for a carefree life is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not yourself, and God will take care of you. When is the last time you seriously sought the Lord? Sought the Lord first. You say, well, what does that mean exactly? Seek the Lord. Seek first his kingdom. It means that as a priority, numero uno, you pour your life into eternal things, into the eternal work of Jesus Christ. To seek first means you're going to win people into the kingdom to be saved. You want to disciple people and make sure they grow, that you grow to influence them. I think Paul expressed it beautifully. When on the way to Jerusalem and people warned him and said, you know, you could get hurt if you go to Jerusalem. They're going to beat you up. You could even die. His response, none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. Jesus summed it up beautifully when he said, do not labor for food that perishes, but labor for food that does not perish. Seek first the kingdom. I love the person who said, blessed is the man who is too busy to worry in the daytime and therefore too sleepy to worry at night. Busy yourself. Channel your concerns in the right direction. I want to close with a couple of quick practical things. A a couple bullet points. How can I apply this to my life today when I leave, tomorrow, at work, this week, where I live? 
Let me give them to you very practically. First of all, cultivate an awareness of God's presence in your life. You walk into a situation, there's stress, there's anxiety, you have that propensity to worry, stop. Say, wait a minute, Jesus said he'd never leave me or forsake me. God promised to be with me in all of my troubles. He's with me now. He's here now. He knows it all. Cultivate an awareness of God's presence. Second, condition yourself to relax because God is your master. Relax because God is your father. Relax because God is the ruler and you're a subject of the kingdom. Not just relax, breathe, but relax because of that fact. Third, determine to obey God no matter what. You see, in your situation, when there's stress and that anxiety, find out the will of God, either by the counsel of others or the word of God, and determine whatever is the will of God, I'm going to do it no matter what. See, that's seeking first the kingdom of God. I'll I'll obey him. I'll find, find out what he wants. Fourth, replace worry with prayer, specific prayer. Instead of all that self-talk that goes on inside your head, turn it into God talk. Cast your cares upon him. Cast your burden upon the Lord. Specific prayer. What is your will, Lord? Help me. Fifth, this is going to take a little longer. Take a walk. Go find some birds. Go look at some flowers in the neighborhood. And then when you observe the birds and the flowers, say, God is their creator, but he's my father. I have a relationship with their creator. He's my dad. You say, well, is all this important? I think it is, lest ulcers become our badge of unbelief. Our badge of belief ought to be this trust in God. A man was walking home one evening. It was dark. He was on a path he wasn't familiar with. On one side it was a ravine. He didn't see where he was going. And he tumbled downward into darkness, into nothingness. And he thought immediately, I'm toast. I'm dead. Flailing his arms, looking for something to grab onto. Finally, he grabs onto a bush, a branch. And he's hanging there in midair. And he thinks, I can't hold on much longer. And he's filled with anxiety and his muscles are aching and every minute seems like an hour and eventually his body goes numb and he has to let go and he lets go and he falls six inches. (laughs) And we listen to that and we think, you know, all of the misery he could have avoided if he would have let go a lot sooner. But he didn't know. And how much anxiety and trouble could we alleviate if we learned to let go? God's everlasting arms are underneath. He's not going to let you splat. He promised to provide. Father, oh, it's such a great thing to be able to call you that, Father. You are Almighty God, you are from everlasting to everlasting. You are all of those great theological terms, but you're our Father. And once again, that relationship brings a confidence. You're our Master. You're our Father. You are the ruler of the kingdom. And you address our concerns. Help us in realizing who you are. Realize what you can do with us.
In Jesus' name, amen.